Warriors, the weekly foreign affairs podcast that asks, what else is happening in the world? I'm Essie Cup. You know, if you, if you know me at all, you know I talk a lot, probably more than you'd prefer, about the Syrian war and the humanitarian crisis there. And you've heard me say this a, a thousand times, at least. Half a million people are dead, 50,000 of them children. I have repeated those statistics more times than, than I can count. And, and look, I get it. You have lives. You have important things going on in your own backyard. And it's hard to pay attention to what's happening, quote unquote, over there. And even when we do, it feels like, well, what can I do about it? There's nothing I can do about it from here. But I want to be really clear on one point. History will remember this genocide. And for the Western world's inaction, we will be judged harshly. Because unlike World War II Germany, we have pictures, we have videos, we have evidence of Bashar al-Assad's slaughter of his own people staring us in the face. We have them in real time, not, you know, uncovered years later or even brought home by photojournalists, you know, months later. We have this stuff now. We can say, you know, this isn't our fight. We can repeat dumb slogans like America first, if that makes us feel better. But history will not look kindly upon us for ignoring the murder of an entire generation of Syrians. I read a tragic but really super important piece last week, and I wanted to share some of it with you. Um, Josh Rogan is a CNN contributor, and he's a reporter at, at The Washington Post. He writes on national security and foreign policy. And he spoke to a Syrian survivor of Assad's genocide. And believe me, there are very few of those. Uh, Omar al Shogar has a story that is awful. He was tortured multiple times. He was imprisoned for years. His father was killed. His brothers were killed. His cousins were killed. Some of the torture of his family members he heard. Um, he went to Washington recently to share his story with lawmakers and officials. I'm really glad he did because sometimes, you know, we can repeat the, the, uh, the statistics. We can sort of talk in very serious tones about what happened, but Sometimes you really need to put a face with what's been happening. And when real people like Omar share their stories, I think it has a really, really important impact. Um, So I want to bring in Josh Rogan, uh, who wrote that important piece. And uh, thank you for joining me today, Josh. Well, thanks for having me on and uh, thanks for uh, bringing attention to this issue. You know, uh, I agree with the way that you framed it 100 percent. And I just think, you know, as a bit of context... Mm -hmm. It's important for people to understand how we got to where we are, yeah. why it is that the American people have, and the, most of the world, frankly, has largely ignored you know, one of the, if not the greatest mass atrocities of the modern era that's ongoing right now. It's still happening right yeah. now. There's still you know, torture, um, slaughterhouses right now, mass uh, murder, mass starvation sieges, chemical weapons. You name it, crematoriums, gassing children, it's all happening right now. And, you know, the world seems impotent and, frankly, uncaring. And, uh, you know, 
I haven't covered this for eight years in Washington. I know you've seen the same thing that I saw, which is that both the Obama and Trump administrations had an incentive for not educating the American people about this, for not publicizing it, uh, because they weren't willing to, to do the things that could have been, should have been, should still be done yeah. to try to first expose and then somehow prevent uh, these atrocities from going on. And, you know, this gets you into the debate over, okay, well, what should we do? And I'm happy to get into that debate. Uh, but I, let's start where you started, which is the idea here that, you know, a ton of evidence, the photos, the documentation is just piling up in courts all over the world. Uh, and that's been going on for years, and still the international community has largely been silent. Um, yeah, I mean, I, let me just, like Omar. yeah, let me just, just to back it up for a second for our, for our listeners, I mean, and what, I want to get into to Caesar, too, because um, I think that's an important story, but I, I, I alone have seen, I don't know, half a dozen documentaries about Syria. I don't have special access to them. They're not just like for for journalists to see. You can watch, you know, Cries from Syria. You can watch the White Helmets documentary. These are accessible to anyone. And they're really hard to watch. I'll be really honest. I can't always get through through them in one sitting. Um, But they're there. And so there's no excuse for people to say, well, I wasn't, I wasn't aware how bad of how bad it was. Yeah, that's right. And you know, when I wrote my column, I framed it as our modern Holocaust or the Syrian Holocaust. Yeah. And you know, I got a bunch of reactions. Some people said, "Well, it's not exactly the same," and this and that. And other people said, "Actually, this is the best modern analogy you could draw." And yes. you know, one organization that happens to agree with that is the Holocaust Museum, which has done a ton of work, not gotten a ton of credit for. Uh, compiling this evidence, publicizing it, uh, trying to get people involved, trying to get people to notice. Uh, yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, you know, and most people, when they are confronted with this kind of thing, many of them will turn away. Yeah. Uh, but that's the whole point, is that when you hear from a guy like Omar, uh, uh, who as a 15-year-old child was arrested for no reason, tortured for three years, lost everything, lost his entire world, his entire family, uh, almost lost his life. Uh, and when when you're confronted with that person sitting in front of you, well, it's impossible to turn away. Well, so people might not know, you know, the, the TikTok, the history of this war. But let me start with um, Omar. He joined protests um, when he was 15. The, the anti-Assad graffiti uh, in a town called Dada um, was really what sparked this. Teenagers were rounded up after that graffiti went up on, on the walls, and they were rounded up. They were tortured by Assad's regime. Parents went looking for their kids. They couldn't find them. Some kids came back. Some didn't. And people started protesting this treatment. And those protests sparked an almost, you know, decade-long assault on innocent civilians by Assad. So when was Omar uh, part of the protest? Was it that far back, or was it more sort of toward toward the the middle of of this uh, right. siege. Yeah, he's almost a perfect case study because he was just a 15-year-old kid who went out into the streets because that was the thing to do. Right. Everyone's going out onto the streets and he wanted to see what was what. 
And so he went out onto the streets. His parent, his father, a retired military officer, wasn't happy about it. And sure enough, he saw his friend get shot dead standing right next to him. He was arrested. He was tortured for a couple of days. His father paid a bribe. They let him out. And what did he do? He went right back to the streets because then he knew the true nature of his regime, and then he knew what he was fighting for. Mm-hmm. And this kind of gets us into the sort of the false choice that's often presented in Washington when the Syria issue does come up, right? Mm-hmm. You're either with Assad or you're with the terrorists. That there's this notion, this, this mantra, this propaganda, frankly, that the terrorists attacked Assad and he's fighting terrorism. That's Assad's narrative. It's a narrative of some in Washington yeah. who support Assad. It's just not uh, the but, case. <laughs> That's all put to the lie when you talk to Omar, because his family was pro-Assad until Assad killed them. And the reason Assad killed them was because they held the piece of ground that Assad wanted, and Assad couldn't permit dissent on that piece of ground. So he extinguished the entire village, burned it to the ground, killed everybody there who wasn't a child or a very old person, and then threw all the rest of them in prison to be tortured. That's the character of this regime. That's why regular Syrian people, not terrorists, normal people can't live under that regime. That's why the revolution started. That's why the revolution will never end. So he, Omar, was was transferred to a number of different prisons. He was was at the military intelligence prison known as Branch 291. Um, He says sexual torture was, was popular there. He was transferred to Branch 215, where uh, you report most people only survive weeks. He was there for 21 months. He moved to a prison in uh, Zednaya for 10 months. Um, And importantly, while he was at Branch 215, he was forced to number and tag dead bodies, hundreds of them. And a military police officer known as Caesar ended up escaping Syria with more than 50,000 photographs. He turned them over so that the world could see the slaughter. What did we learn from from Syria and from those prisons where where Omar spent so much time? Yeah, I mean, it's really crazy. And I spent hours with Omar, and he told me the the craziest stories of what happened to him. And it's unique because, as you said, most people don't survive in those prisons. But he was a young kid. He was in good health. He had all sorts of uh, ways of, like, you know, surviving and trying to keep his cousins alive. He failed in that regard, but he tried hard. And eventually he got released, right? And his mother paid a bribe. And while he was there, uh, he witnessed mass slaughters on a regular basis. It was a, a, a sickening, dystopian scene where these guards were literally having fun by torturing and murdering people for no reason. And one of his jobs was to document this because there's one thing about the Assad regime is that they're systematic in their documentation of their atrocities. They want to know what happened. In other words, that's how you know it's top-directed, because the top guys told the bottom guys, write down everything, take a picture of everything. We need to know these people were killed. We want their families to know they were killed. Mm -hmm. We want their families to know that if they don't fall in line, they'll be killed. And it's part of this huge, you know, machinery of death, which is just churning out bodies in an amazing rate. And when Caesar, a military photographer who who was part of the system, couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. He escaped with 55,000 pictures, and the FBI verified them. It's all real. So there's nobody on the world who could really deny, although some try, that these atrocities yeah. happen and that they're ongoing. And three years later, you know, after we've already seen the pictures, there's still nothing really that has been done. 
And no, Congress, uh, just to, yeah, affair. yeah, just to, um, just to educate our, our listeners, uh, Congress did pass the Caesar bill named after Caesar um, a month or two ago. It's a sanctions bill, basically, that's that sanctions um, actors, companies, businesses, allies of Bashar al-Assad who might want to help in the rebuilding effort uh, of, of Syria. Um, it, it tries to prohibit them from doing that, but it's sort of an after the fact um, measure that, you know, that, that, that does not does not keep Assad from from killing more people. Right. So, you know, Congress, there are some in Congress who have been good on this. You know, there's some money going towards accountability. But, you know, again, we're often presented with this false choice. Well, oh, what do you want to do? Yeah. You want to invade with 100,000 troops? You want to have another Iraq? How did that work out? Right. And this is sort of what you see from a lot of people, both on the right and on the left, who yeah. are, you know, basing their foreign policy ideologies off of a, a reaction to, like, decades of failed interventions mm-hmm. and fail to see that there's a middle ground between invading a country and ignoring mass atrocities. And that middle ground is a combination of a bunch of things, helping refugees, you know, helping accountability, helping justice, yeah. um, you know, giving them aid and all of these things that we're not doing, that nobody's doing. And sure, a few sanctions from Congress couldn't hurt, but mm-hmm. yet the atrocities continue. Well, and I have I have compared the Syrian war to the Holocaust before, just as you do in this piece. You write, what would Assad have to do to justify a comparison to the Holocaust? Attempted ethnic cleansing on a massive scale? Check. Mass torture and murder of civilians in custody? Check. Crematoriums? Check. Gassing children? Check. And and yet, Josh, when I make this comparison to the Holocaust, it, that makes people sometimes uneasy or, or, or tense around around that comparison but how how could you see it any differently? Well, that's just right. I mean, we shouldn't make the comparison lightly, but if it doesn't apply here, where does it yeah. apply? And the problem that some people have with making that comparison is because it compels us to act. Because right. if, we are, if we have learned anything from the Holocaust is that we cannot stand aside in the face of atrocities of this scale, that that's not only a terrible thing to do as a human being, but a terrible thing to do as a country. Yeah. Right. And, you know, we're currently in this crazy debate, you know, heading into the next round of elections. You already see it inside the Democratic Party. You've seen it for a long time inside the Republican Party. Like, Does America have a responsibility to help people who aren't American? Yeah. Do we have a responsibility to do something to intervene, maybe not militarily, when we see horrendous things happening around the world? Is that in our interest? And for years and years and years, there was a consensus that it was. And now that consensus is being called into question. And, you know, perhaps we need to have this debate. But I'm prepared to engage in that debate and Mm. make the argument that when we see a Holocaust happening on our watch, it's both in our interests and true to who we should be as Americans to do something about it and not turn away. So let's leave on this note. Do you think that there will ever be be justice? Will will Assad be, you know, tried for war crimes? Will he be toppled? Will, or, you know, will anything happen to stop this? Or will this just be the Holocaust that we forgot? There is no doubt that Assad will leave office one way or the other. It seems increasingly likely he may leave when he dies of old age. That could mean another 20 years, yeah. 20 years of atrocities in Syria. Yet, after those 20 years, there will be hundreds, if not thousands, of survivors. 
they will never forget. They will never stop seeking justice. And the, the task for the rest of the world, if we can't get Assad, is to get all of the other people, thousands of people spread all over the world who are war criminals who committed these atrocities. And if we don't do that as a country and as an international community, well, then you can anticipate that these kinds of crimes will be repeated again and again. Uh, Josh Rogan, the piece is in the Washington Post. I encourage everyone to read it in, in full so you can really get Omar Al Sugar's incredible story um, as vividly as Josh paints it. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Anytime. That does it for this episode of Weekend Warriors. I'm Essie Cup. See you next time. 